You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 11. Hi, I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. In the immediate post-war period, the Soviet Union, despite the immense destruction that had been wreaked across its territory by the Nazi invasion of 1941-44, to shocked the world with its rapid acquisition of what was then high technology, in particular with respect to the nuclear and space sectors. It also rose quickly to have the world's second largest university system just behind the United States. This prowess in education and science provoked huge investments in higher education and science across the Western world. But the thing about Soviet success in higher education and science is that they were actually two different sets of successes. Unlike in North America, science, big science anyway, was to a significant extent conducted outside the university system in a series of laboratories and institutes which belonged to a central academy of sciences. This approach was not unknown in the West. Bodies similar to the academy still form a major part of science systems in places like France and Germany. But in the Soviet Union, it was taken to a much higher level. The breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991 led to a crumbling of science across post-Soviet space. It wasn't just that funding for science and education collapsed. The very networks of science that crisscrossed the Union were broken up as well. And in time, policy for education science began to diverge across these countries. Some joined the Bologna process and integrated it into a more Western mode of operation. Some abandoned their academies. Some did not. In effect, what was created was a whole bunch of little laboratory experiments about how well different kinds of research and higher education policy frameworks operate given similar starting conditions. With me today is Professor Isaac Fruman, head of the Observatory of Higher Education Innovations at Jacobs University in Bremen, Germany. He's the co-editor of two key books on what's happened to universities across the 15 ex-Soviet republics. The first, 25 Years of Transformations of Higher Education Systems in Post-Soviet Countries, appeared in 2018. And the second is Building Research Capacity at Universities, Insight from Post-Soviet Countries, which was out earlier this year from Palgrave Macmillan. Our discussion today ranges over a wide variety of topics. How to develop system topologies in post-Soviet space, how various nations went about de-Sovietification, and also how a number of them seem to be re-Sovietizing just in the past couple of years. Isaac's range of knowledge across so many countries makes him an excellent guide to this set of topics. So enough from me, and over to Isaac. Isaac, before we get started on the main topic, the book that you edited with Maya Chanksaryani and Igor Fedyukin is called Building Research Capacity, Insights from Post-Soviet Countries. But what does post-Soviet mean nowadays? It's 30 years since the end of the USSR. Is this a geographic term? Is it a historical term? Or what is it? It's my favorite question. <laughs> and I have to tell you that very recently, some of my friends from these countries, let me call them these countries, told me that they feel that some flavor of colonialism in this term. And I said that it's not post-Russian countries. We call them post-Soviet and it's really historical. But to be fair, they convinced me, almost convinced me to start to call them ex-Soviet. As non-native speaker, I don't feel real difference. But yeah, these countries shared a common past. And I hope you and our audience know what is past 
dependence. We still, in many European cities, use roads built by Romans. And if we do not recognize them, if we do not reflect this path that we depend on, we may have difficulties to understand our present. And the last point, just to clarify why I think it's important to use this term, is that still, 30 years later, almost half percent of the teaching force in higher education systems in these countries got their education in Soviet university. Right. So they bring these norms, attitudes, etc. This is why I continue to use this historical commonwealth, I would say. So let's talk about their common past in the Soviet Union. The caricature of the Soviet research system is that all the research was separated out into institutes run by the Academy of Sciences and universities were just there for teaching. But that was never quite true, was it? There were always some universities which managed to keep a significant research presence. Lomonosov in Moscow would be the most obvious, but some of the other research institutes there as well. But also, as you point out in the book, at least in official documents, university teachers were all supposed to be researchers at the same time as they were teachers. They weren't necessarily remunerated that way, but that it was part of their job description. So what was the actual state of researchers and research universities and research funding in the Soviet period? And, and why weren't there more universities like Lomonosov? More than 80% of doctoral students were trained at universities, not at research universities. At, as, at research institutes. Mm -hmm. Higher education sector produced the next generation of researchers for these countries. And indeed, we found that it was mandatory each Soviet professor, assistant professor, lecturer, full professor, had an annual plan that should be approved by the university president. And this plan had two parts. One is teaching and the second research. So in, in the line with planned economy, each professor had to plan how many articles he or she will produce, et cetera, et cetera. But indeed, there was a big difference. So we found that we use the same word research for two very different we call it science one and science two, not in this book, but we are writing now an article about that, because I would say that there was a kind of special, there are quite big distinctions between two sciences. Researchers within the Academy of Sciences, they had to compete on the global scale. They, they knew foreign languages, they read modern journals, et cetera, et cetera. Most of research that were done at the universities were very localized, local, of local nature, we can call them. There was no real rigorous evaluation. There was no peer review. So I guess there were two different sciences and we hope that there will be more studies on these differences between them. Interesting. What about the geographic dispersion of research universities in the Soviet Union? How much of the, the sort of the top class, the world class institutes and research universities were in Russia proper 
Or maybe to put it another way, how weak and uneven was the base that the other 14 countries, successor countries, had to build on after 1991? That's a difficult question. It's politically difficult question, frankly speaking, because someone can accuse me to be kind of imperialist in a sense, but I would refer to a book written by Terry Martin, Affirmative Action Empire. Yeah, Terry is history professor at Harvard, and he did a great job to see how the Soviet government tried to build research and education capacities in different Soviet republics. It was part of imperialism, I would say, but imperialism which wanted to build not very vertical system, but kind of distributed system with many centers and highly specialized universities. For example, I got my PhD at University of Latvia, and there was Academy of Sciences in Latvia, and the best Soviet research institute on pharmacology, I, I remember that, was in Latvia. And I recently was in, relatively recently, in Turkmenistan. This is a country that we don't know much It's uh, hard about. to get into. Yeah, I'm impressed. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, it happened when I worked for the World Bank. And I was, uh, and I was talking with a person who was, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, a member of the so-called researcher at Institute Research Institute of Sun Energy, because Turkmenistan is a very sunny place. Or I grew up, for example, in Siberia, where we have a lot of forests, and the Central Institute of Research in Forests uh, and Wood was there. So there was a deliberate policy to distribute the research system geographically. And it created then, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it, it created a huge challenge because these countries inherited very imbalanced uh, and strangely specialized system. In a sense, the Institute of Sun was too big for Turkmenistan. Or Institute of Pharmacology in Latvia worked with industry in all republics. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And unfortunately, it, it created a whole, a whole set of problems for the countries. So when we talk about change in higher education systems over time, and different countries have grown in different ways over the last 30 years, there's macro level changes at the government level. There's micro level changes at the institutional level. Let's start with the first. You have a sort of a typology where you say the Baltic nations plus Kazakhstan and Georgia are one, share one type of macro response or, or policy direction in the post-Soviet period, because they, those are the countries that dismantled their academies that either transformed the research institutes into universities or had the institutes absorbed into the universities. How difficult a process was this? What was the key to making that strategy work? That's a fascinating question, but before I uh, come to it, I would say that we don't have, we still don't have kind of comprehensive typology or universal typology. Mm -hmm. In fact, when in 2017, we started a big, a first project 
to compare all 15 countries. We published this book with Jeroen Yusman and Anna Smolenceva in Palgrave in 2018. We had a different typology based on different landscapes. And we had Baltic countries, Central Asia, uh, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Caucasus, more geography. You refer to the typology based on their response to this, to the challenges in building national research systems. And indeed, we found that there were some countries that decided to close, to convert Academy of Sciences into clubs of senior scientists, I would say. For example, in Kazakhstan, they continue to receive some stipends from the government, but all institutes from the academies of sciences were moved either into universities or under the Ministry of Higher Education and Science. And I, I have to admit that there was no rigorous evaluation of the effectiveness of these policies, probably because all countries, unfortunately, invested very little into research in both cases. If they dismantled academies of sciences or they kept academy of sciences, we observed the decline of research funding everywhere. And it was probably more important factor than organization. Interesting. Okay. So in the other 10 countries where the academies were maintained, at least in, in some form, were there examples in there where there were successes in research? Are there, what's the counter argument to remaking universities on a European or Anglo-American model the way the Baltic countries did? Did Russia or one of the other countries have special success keeping the academies? In fact, to be fair, Russia is kind of intermediate example. The only country that kept Academy of Sciences completely intact is Belarus. Russia, I would say, did half reform because they moved, uh, they kept academy. Uh, Russia keeps an academy, the Academy of Sciences. They even increased stipends for the members. And uh, Russia keeps all institutes, but administratively, these institutes are now more dependent on the ministry. And I would say that we don't see big success in the model. In fact, Kazakhstan probably has some success compared with the initial level when they started mm -hmm. to in, in, invest into that. But it's, again, that's a good example when there was no rigorous evaluation of these institutional changes. Got it. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. So let's turn to those 
structural issues, right? Uh, which, as you say, there's a, there's a fair bit of path dependency there. In Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, I, my impression is that those universities in those countries now look a lot like other Northern European universities because there were a lot of bilateral contacts and exchanges. And of course, there was integration into the European Union. And so they, they look a lot like the rest of Northern Europe. But in the rest of the ex-Soviet Union, again, my impression is just there's, there's a commonality in the way that ministries of higher education try to control institutions. So the accountability relationships are quite different. And in the way universities themselves are run, your co-editor, Maya chung Yana put it in another book. She talked about rector feudalism, which is a term I love, actually. And that there's actually a fair bit of commonality across the other 12 countries that way. Is that fair? What would be the nuances you would put on that picture? We observe this not rector feudalism, but this managerialism, government managerialism everywhere. So I, I think that yeah, that's an important factor. And indeed, the ministries have stronger hand in non-Baltic countries, let me say. Mm -hmm. But I guess that such factors like Bologna process and all almost all countries joined Bologna process. Even now Russia declared that it left Bologna process. But so funny that they just call master level, they call specialized higher education and bachelor basic higher education, but it's still two-tier system. And another thing is the uh, role of international ring. So all uh, the ministries now in all these countries report to the presidents or to their parliaments, mainly about the positions of their universities in international ranking. And this is much stronger force than strange regulation, uh, regulations mm. made by the ministry. Got it. What about the lives of individual academics? How much would have changed over the past 30 years? If we jump over that decade where no one was getting paid and then the financial future was very difficult. If I compare someone now to the late 1980s, where would the changes in, in the life of an individual academic have changed the most? And what would have changed the least? I guess that unfortunately, indeed, there are almost no changes in kind of ceiling academic independence. Unfortunately, I agree with my friend and co-author, Maya Csikszentmihalyi, that it's, it's a big problem. Academics feel very dependent on the rector, on the minister, etc. And by the way, it's important to mention that one of the legacies, one of the legacies from the Soviet time is that there are no lifetime contracts. There are no tenure systems uh, in most. Yeah, it didn't exist in Soviet Union. Every five years, you had to go through the competitive procedure that it exists today as well. Another thing that didn't change really is the huge teaching load. Despite all talks about research capacity, et cetera, et cetera, I guess 90% of professors don't have teaching load less than they would have 30 years ago. And that's a huge problem. What changed, I guess that in many countries, again, not everywhere and not in all universities, but at universities that try to be leaders, 
this idea of moving from science two to science one, when you have to not just publish something, but you have to go through rigorous evaluation, you have to publish in reputable journals, you have to reference international colleagues, etc., etc. That's very important change, and we observe it almost in every country, but not in at every university, as I mentioned. Yeah. So I'm curious about two Central Asian countries in particular that seem to me to have a lot of potential, at least in the medium term, uh, Kazakhstan, where you and I were working earlier this year, and, and Uzbekistan. These are increasingly wealthy countries. They have huge youth populations and until fairly recently, quite small university populations. So you see this massive expansion of opportunity and some of it's going to be met by, as you say, uh, Russian or other foreign universities opening branch campuses there. But neither has a very broad base of research universities. So what's going to happen here? These are countries that they want research universities. They want to be part of that global scientific dialogue and they're going to put a lot of money into higher education. But at the same time, they've got really big access problems or challenges to deal with. What do you think their path is going to be going forward? Are they likely to, to chart a very different path when it comes to research-intensive universities? Look, when many years ago I met Theodor Shanin, Cambridge professor who was asked by Open Society Foundation to build Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. And we discussed with him this endeavor and because I would compare Russian standing in social and economic sciences with today's standing of, let's say, Uzbekistan with all my respect in area or let's say of computers. And Theodore told me this famous story that if you want to have Cambridge, you have to have three generations go to Cambridge. So the first answer, we, we cannot expect the results too quickly. The second answer that I, yes, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan have a lot of similarities, but Uzbekistan in terms of policies is very much behind Kazakhstan. They started this real investment into universities into modernization of higher education just a few years ago. But in Kazakhstan, we know, indeed, we worked together early this year, that, for example, Nazarbayev University is increasingly moving ahead. Yeah, much slower than it was expected, but it's moving. So I think that these countries are trying to build modern, effective system of competitive research support they understand that they need this cooperation, international cooperation. And I can, I, I'm quite optimistic. But again, I, I spoke with a couple of ministers in Kazakhstan, and they all want the results very fast. It cannot happen. That's a very common problem internationally. Let me ask yeah. you one last question. Looking forward, let's say we're going forward to say 2041, which would be the 50th anniversary of the dissolution of the USSR. Will we still be talking about post-Soviet universities and, and which aspect of Sovietness might be most likely to endure in the region's universities? Yeah, I just, I wish you and I will be able to check if what I'm going to say will be true in 10 years. 
I think that the picture will be more, di more diverse. And unfortunately, I see that Russia and Belarus are trying to uh, do what my colleague Igor Chirikov called resovietization. They introduce, it's really ridiculous how many statements about glorious past I hear during the last two years. And they, that's another story, resovietization of the Russian higher education. I know that many people are quite sober and they don't want to believe into these myths, but that's a policy now. I think that at least for a few countries, we'll, have, we'll talk about post-Soviet and Soviet legacy, I'm sure. Will other countries keep this legacy? In my opinion, depends from their reflectiveness. Again, I think that we have to study more these remains, these ancient roads. For example, there is a very simple example. The uh, Soviet system was very highly specialized and it had uh, a lot of highly specialized universities, agricultural, medical, etc. China, many years ago, completely changed this system and established comprehensive universities. But we see that, for example, in Kazakhstan, for some reasons, they decided, and in, and in Uzbekistan, by the way, they decided to re-establish teacher training universities. So I'm afraid that without kind of critical reflection of this legacy, there is a big risk that under new slogans, we'll see a glorious past emerging again. Isaac, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Alex, thank you for this opportunity. I enjoy your podcasts and I'm very honored to be part of it. Thank you. It just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please drop us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Rob Kelchin. He's the head of the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and a well-known author and higher education commentator. He'll be with us to discuss the top 10 higher education stories from the United States in 2023. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 